or not to be. Not to be. Welcome to Arnegeddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time to take on Arnold's biggest hit of all time, the movie Adored by Billions. Every year they hold retrospectives to this movie, revival screenings packed around the globe. Tony, we're going to talk about Last Action Hero from 1993. Yeah, last but certainly not least. (laughs) This movie was Arnold's disaster. Everyone has one on their track record if you're around long enough in Hollywood. Uh, you know, Stallone had Rhinestone or Stop or, or My Mom Will Shoot. If you're a big star, you have a bomb. This was Schwarzenegger's. Deserve it or not, we'll get to that in a bit. But at the time, very much considered one. Yeah, catastrophic. Yes. Now, I want to know, Tony, when you saw this movie back in, well, did you see it in theaters? No, I didn't, actually. Oh, okay. I, I didn't see this movie until... Uh, a couple of years later, actually, when it was released on, you know, the movie channel or something like that. Sure, when, Super Channel, right? Uh, I think it was Super Channel, actually. When did you see it? I saw it in theaters, uh, I believe opening weekend, which was weird because I was pretty young at this point. I was 12, so it's not like when you're like 11 or 12, you rush out opening weekend. You tend to fall back on what your parents are going to take you to or when you can arrange to have friends available. And uh, for some reason, I was available the weekend this opened, which was June 18th, 1993. So I was there, Tony. I was there when it all went down. Yeah, and what did you think? I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I remember as a kid being so excited for Last Action Hero because, I mean, Terminator 2, come on. And I loved, obviously, Predator, the first Terminator, uh, Twins. I was a big Twins fan at that point in my life. Right. And I went to Last Action Hero with bells on, so excited. And I just remember being so bored and just finding none of the action exciting at all. I don't think I understood a lot of the jokes or just didn't really find them funny. And I remember the movie feeling incredibly long, which it really isn't. It's only in two hours, ten minutes, but it felt in the theater very long. That's a pretty long running time for a movie in the early 1990s. I guess, but also maybe when you're 12 and you're just not really picking up on the vibe the movie's putting out there, (laughs) that's a really long time. So were you a fan when you first saw it? When I first saw the movie, I I remember it being critically panned or at least getting really mixed reviews and all my friends said it sucked. And so I went into it with not a lot of expectations and I remember thinking, you know, this movie could be better. But it's actually pretty enjoyable. And I've seen it a few times since over the years. And every time I've watched it since then, uh, and I'll get to whether or not I still feel that way later. uh, But every time (laughs) I've watched it since then, I've thought, this movie has been unfairly pilloried. You know, this might not be uh, Das Boot. Sure. But... It wasn't in German. (laughs) (laughs) Although parts of it are just Just, as... A little bit, yeah. Yeah. it's not dust boot, but it's unfairly treated by people and that it had a lot of, uh, I thought, the times I've seen it, fairly funny comments about action movies in general of the 80s. 
Okay, I mean, it's interesting because around this time you have another vanity project coming out, a big star vehicle, very expensive, tumultuous behind-the-scenes stuff going on, and that's Hudson Hawk. Right. And, like, the two of them are kind of similar in that very ambitious, really weird movies. They are not based on an existing property. They're doing their own crazy thing. Both of them are box office disasters. You're talking about the Bruce Willis vehicle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, they both spawn NES video games. <laughs> Neither of which were very good. <laughs> but in recent years, like, those movies have gotten a little bit of a uh, look back. A lot of critics have written about them and said, you know, they're not very good, but there's a lot of interesting things going on. There's a lot of ambition. They aren't lazy. And maybe it's a little bit of nostalgia for... I think a lot of critics sit there now and see a lot of the really generic stuff piling up in theaters that's all based on existing properties. And they get a little bit uh, nostalgic for the disasters of yesterday, which were at least original. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, actually. Both Last Action Hero and Hudson Hawk have seen a little bit of a critical renaissance in that uh, if you go on like Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic or one of the aggregate reviewer sites, by and large, the positive reviews that you will read about the movie are more recent, where people yeah. are saying, this was Schwarzenegger's foray into a madcap adventure after the <laughs> hit Terminator 2, and this was Bruce Willis's uh, I, you know, attempt to do an action comedy. With like musical numbers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the negative reviews, and boy are there some negative reviews, are by and large from the time it was released. Yeah, I even watched the Siskel and Ebert review of this movie before we sat down to rewatch it. And it was interesting in that neither of them like hated it. They were both pretty on board with what the movie was trying to do, and they were just like, this movie kind of drags, or it just kind of loses its steam, and a lot of it doesn't work maybe a little bit later. But they were both kind to it like they accepted that it maybe didn't work but that it was trying things i didn't watch the siskel and ebert review but i do remember the siskel and ebert review mm -hmm. from when it was released and if i recall they described it as being 10 minutes too long yeah yeah that's true yeah i think uh, siskel said that i think yeah i'm not sure i can't remember one of them said it 10 minutes may be a little generous <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this movie opens June 18th, 1993. <laughs> and what an unfortunate time for any movie to be opening. This was one week after Jurassic Park opened. <laughs> <laughs> That's that dinosaur movie, right? It's too bad it wasn't Jurassic Park 3. Maybe then they would have done a little better. Yeah, and that's an unfortunate time for any movie to be opening. I mean, you could be opening a real classic and... Jurassic Park's going to blow you out of the water, especially when you're an action movie yeah. uh, targeting a lot of the same audience. And it's kind of crazy because everyone involved with the movie, John McTiernan, Arnold, the producers, they wanted to move this movie. They knew Jurassic Park was going to be a monster that they couldn't compete with. And it was the studio Columbia that was like, we are going up against Jurassic Park. Which, what a weird thing in hindsight. I think they were probably worried a little bit about the negative press that comes from moving a, sure. a, a movie date. Uh, they were probably, I think the more weekends you can stack in a summer uh, mm -hmm. for an action blockbuster, the, the more money you make, unless you're going against Jurassic Park. One of the things that I've read about this film is that there was a lot of noise uh, going around about it, that it was expected to be a blockbuster but they oh, did yeah. they did some advanced screenings that weren't well received and then um basically there was a bunch of negative press that was generated about it and right similar to some of these blockbuster movies that have failed in the past um 
you know, look at, say, Waterworld, I think is a good example. Yeah. Where even if the movie had been great, there was just so much negativity around it when it was released. Yeah. That in some ways it was destined to fail. And then you put it up against Jurassic Park. Yeah. And you got a bomb on your hands. Well, this movie also had, like, a disastrous promotional campaign where, like, the movie was rushed in, like, nine and a half months. They uh, really didn't even get to finish the movie. They said it was edited together. But John McTiernan said, like, there's some sequences that aren't even finished. Like, they didn't actually get edited. They just assembled the footage he'd shot without actually refining a single thing. And uh, so the movie is being, you know, shoved into theaters because the studio wants their big Schwarzenegger movie to compete. They think that this is going to be a battle between, you know, the T-Rex and Arnold for the summer. And I remember thinking that was going to be the sense of going into summer 93. As a kid, even I was going... It's going to be Arnold or Jurassic Park. I don't know which one it's going to be. And they had all these crazy promotional ideas. One of them was they paid $500,000 to put the logo for the movie on a NASA rocket that was being shot into space. Is that actually true or is that a, just an urban myth? It seems like it's true. Schwarzenegger even references it in his book. And the whole thing was they paid $500,000... And then the NASA launch was delayed until after the movie came out. Oh, God. Because <laughs> I remember that at the time. I remember hearing about the rocket. And in the research I was doing leading up to this episode, I, I read a lot about this rocket. But I read an equal number of stories about uh, the rocket being an urban legend as yeah. I did about it being true. Uh, from equally credible sources. Yeah, it's really crazy. Or I incredible sources. <laughs> Dubious <laughs> sources, as the case may be. It's kind of like the James Cameron Piranha 2 legends as to what actually happened on that set. Exactly. But there, one of their other moves was they had a giant inflatable Arnold holding dynamite that they put up in Times Square in New York about... Five months after a truck bombing at the World Trade Center Tower. Oh, boy. Yeah, which was very unfortunate. You can't even say timing because they knew this had happened and they still thought this was a good idea. Well, was it the same inflatable that we see in the movie at the Jack Slater 4 premiere? It must be because I was thinking as I'm seeing the movie again, I can't imagine they built another inflatable, right? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty big. Yeah, so I guess it was that one. But so this movie... Comes out, as we said, June 18th, 1993. A budget of $85 million, uh, 15 and that went to Arnold. <laughs> Which is a little bit of a pay cut from what he was used to. In 93, I don't think he was at 20 yet. I think this was probably the height, maybe. But um, I'd have to go back and check what we uh, yeah. actually said in our Terminator 2 episode. Yeah, I mean, probably on the back end he made a lot. But up front on uh, Last Action, it was 15. But uh, the domestic box office was $50 million. Not great. And the foreign was 87 for a total of 137, but they said they still lost about 25 million on it. So it could be worse. It, it was no cutthroat island. No, no, not even close. There was no. no showgirls. No, it's just that it had such a huge star at the center of it. Yeah, and a star coming off of a blockbuster like Terminator 2. Yeah, yeah. And it was number 26 for the year, right between Summersby with Richard Gere and Jodie Foster and The Nightmare Before Christmas. So, you know. Pretty notable movies there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to sell me on them, Cameron. 
Well, it's funny because I have a very warped perception of how popular Summersby is because that was one of my dad's favorite movies when I was growing up. And I have seen Summersby probably like three or four times. I can honestly say I've never seen Summersby. Okay. <laughs> I have seen The Nightmare Before Christmas. I've seen that a ton of times. I love that movie. Uh, I'm always I'm always amazed when you hear about how The Nightmare Before Christmas did because in my mind it was one of those movies that was like a huge dark horse success. Yeah. But it really wasn't. It was no, pre- it was pretty a, modest. It was a grower. And it's funny, you know, now, like, I just went to Disneyland uh, last uh, winter, and, you know, every year now they do the haunted house turned into the Nightmare Before Christmas ride, and it's like, boy, that was not going to be the reality in uh, 1993. (laughs) This movie was not that big. But uh, a little bit of a, you know, sum up of the year, the top 10, you had at number one, obviously, Jurassic Park with 357 million. So let's just compare that to the 50 million <laughs> domestic for Lost uh, for Last Action Hero. Maybe it was Lost Action Hero too. <laughs> uh, at number two, you had Mrs. Doubtfire. At number three, you had The Fugitive, which is kind of paving the way for the next phase of what action movies are going to be, where it's more of the everyman stuff. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that in our Collateral Damage episode. I think in Six Day too, because the Six Day really felt like it was taking a lot of The Fugitive. Mm-hmm. Um, at number four, you had The Firm with Tom Cruise. At number five, Sleepless in Seattle. Number six, Indecent Proposal. Number seven, In the Line of Fire, which is actually a really good Clint Eastwood movie. I don't think people really remember that one anymore. Uh, number eight, The Pelican Brief. This was the year of John Grisham adaptations. No kidding. <laughs> the Pelican Brief is one of the most boring movies I've ever sat through, and it smoked the hell out of Last Action Hero. I think it didn't Last Action Hero open the same weekend as Sleepless in Seattle. It did, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and they kind of blamed Sleepless in Seattle for taking their audience. Which I think is a little bit of at that point they're just looking for anything to blame. I'd still be blaming the dinosaurs. <laughs> Me too. They tried with dinosaurs with this one with the La Brea tar pit, but I guess that wasn't enough. And the poster. Uh, and the poster. At number nine for 93, you had Schindler's List. And at number 10, you had Cliffhanger with Stallone. Um, some other notable movies in 93. At number 16, you had Dave, which, of course, the Ivan Reitman comedy that had a Schwarzenegger cameo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, number 18, you had Demolition Man, which we talked about in our Sly versus Schwarzenegger episode last time. This was a big year. This was probably Sylvester Stallone's biggest year for action quality. In totally, totally. Uh, number 49, you had Hard Target, the Van Damme movie. You got a Van Damme cameo in this. That was John Woo's debut in uh, North America, I think. Although I don't know how much creative control he had at that point. And another fiasco movie, you had Super Mario Brothers at number 74. Which was another like scriptless, thrown-together blockbuster that went nowhere. I don't know if it was scriptless. It, it was, was. Yeah, the Super Mario Brothers was. I think they had a script and then they just uh, deviated from it and every single cut day. it to shreds. But you know, it was the first video game movie they had ever made. What do you What do you expect? Exactly. And now, what's kind of interesting is something I noticed in this movie is one of the stars who we're going to go into, Austin O'Brien, who plays Danny Madigan in the film. This is very much a movie where a kid is leading the show. And I was sitting, as I'm watching this movie, going, boy, why is this kid being saddled with all the exposition? Why does this kid have to be the centerpiece of the whole movie? Yeah. And think about it. This is only a couple years removed from the Home Alone, the first two Home Alone movies. Right. So we are still in kid movie utopia, where we're getting nothing but kid hijinks movies. So this year, you also had at number 22, Rookie of the Year. That one's in the better end. The kid who can throw baseballs yeah, really well. that wasn't that bad. At number 24, you had Dennis the Menace, 
With Walter Matthau as Mr. Wilson. That was probably a little closer to the bottom end. <laughs> Number 52, you had the Burt Reynolds and Kid movie, Cop and a Half. That is definitely at the bottom end. <laughs> yeah, and then at number 84, you have the Chuck Norris, Jonathan Brandis movie, Sidekicks. Not great, but still better than Cop and a Half. Yeah, so this is the year of action heroes teaming up with kids. Which, you know, it's funny how it all works out. Because I'm not sure that was intended to be the case. Because, you know, you referenced a lot of the problems with this movie. This originally was a story by Zach Penn and Adam Leff. Yeah, and Zach Penn's no slouch. No, he was... In the Marvel Studios group for, especially Phase 1, he wrote Incredible Hulk. He also worked uh, with a story credit on the first Avengers. Yeah, he did, uh, I think he was a script writer. It might have been just story on uh, X2, X-Men. Yep, correct, yeah, story. Um, he also recently wrote Spielberg's Ready Player One, which was interesting in that it did a lot of what this movie did. Yeah, actually, I, was, I didn't know that, actually, but I was going to... Uh, draw some comparisons actually between Ready Player One and this movie in terms of the the references they drop and stuff like that. Yeah, and their script originally was called Extremely Violent, and it was about a kid brought up on action movies who enters one and subverts all the cliches. It was actually a pretty small-scale, hard-edged, violent movie. Like, it was really tackling movies like Commando, for example, um, which really didn't pull their punches. Right. And um, producer Chris Moore came along, and he saw it as a modern-day Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that it starts off as the script, as a, as a uh, critical send-up of 80s action movies, and then ends up getting rewritten by Shane Black and directed by John McTiernan. Yeah, because what happened was there was a bidding war over their script. It sold for $350,000 to Columbia. And they brought in Arnold. Arnold was going to do Sweet Tooth, which The Rock did years later as the Tooth Fairy. And they won him over by reminding him of his memories watching John Wayne movies. <laughs> this is how they won Schwarzenegger over? Yeah, that's what really appealed to him. That nostalgic idea of watching movies and idolizing your hero on the big screen. You know, I feel sometimes that the way Hollywood movies are produced is kind of insane. Like, I feel, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not privy to really what goes on in these fancy Hollywood restaurants and back rooms and cigar rooms, but I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, especially around this time, uh, a lot of just people talking and yeah. then spending money. <laughs> so what happens is Arnold comes on and he's like, uh, I don't like this script that much because it's really violent. I don't want to make it that violent. And um, I want more professional writing on it. So they brought in, yeah, you said Shane Black and his partner at the time, David Arnett. David Arnett wrote The Adventures of Ford Fairline. They were brought in to turn it into a summer blockbuster. And they said they were really happy with their script. They think they did good work. But then John McTiernan came in. He rewrote pretty much everything. Shane Black and David Arnett were fired. And um, apparently, like, the original writers really wanted someone like uh, Robert Zemeckis or John Landis to really tackle the tone of this thing. They weren't that thrilled with McTiernan. And then McTiernan basically brought in William Goldman, who's like legendary. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Princess Bride. And then they brought in Carrie Fisher. And then they brought in Larry Ferguson, who wrote Hunt for Red October. Then they brought in a whole army of other writers <laughs> to the point where no one was happy. They had no workable script, but they had 9.5 months to make the movie. Yeah, and that's maybe where this movie starts to fall is they, they did make the movie, and at least they shot the movie in about 8.5 months 
And then the editing and release of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I think we mentioned it earlier. John McTiernan, I, I read somewhere that he described it as the closest thing to a live movie he's ever shot. <laughs> because he said basically that the footage went right from the reel to the screen. Yes. And he said it was the worst time I've ever had in this business. <laughs> <laughs> And that's saying a lot, because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> he made Rollerball. <laughs> but ultimately, there was a lot of discussions later that when they were going through this, this three-week editing process... <laughs> three weeks? That's insane. That's crazy. I don't envy the editor. Can you imagine? I don't think there was one. <laughs> oh, there, there must have been an army of editors just getting screamed at. Yes. Um, but they said all through the editing process... No one involved could decide if it was an action movie or a kid's movie. That's not good. And I think that's really evident when you watch the finished film. Um, there's parts of it, definitely. It's not as it's not as bad or as in-your-face as some of the other films that we've looked at, like Twins or Kindergarten Cop. Right. That, you know, have an action component and a comedy component. Mm -hmm. Where you're just like, holy smokes, they targeted this movie for kids? Yeah. This is definitely a kid's movie with a couple of... Amadeus jokes? Yeah. <laughs> Those were for mom and dad. So, Tony, what is this movie about? I'm glad you asked, Cam. <laughs> this movie is about a, a young New York boy called Danny Madigan, who, with the help of his uh, projectionist friend in the failing <laughs> Pandora Theater, uh, gets a magic ticket which transports him into the world of Jack Slater. Uh, right. who is an action star that he idolizes and who is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ultimately, spoiler alert, that same magic ticket transports those movie characters back into the real world. And we get to see the interplay not only between Danny and Officer Slater, but also between the fictionalized, ultra-violent action movie world that Jack Slater lives in and the gritty, real drug-addled, prostitute-filled world that Danny and his single mother live in. Kids movie, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's really strange. Uh, yeah, no, that pretty much sums it up. Now, I'm curious, Tony, we just rewatched this movie. What was your take in 2019? I think my opinion of this movie has gone down a little bit. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have, like I said, I have seen this movie several times, and every time I thought, well, this movie was unfairly treated when it was released. I still think that's true. I thought there was a lot of interesting parts of this movie, parts that made me laugh, but the, the tone and the pacing of the movie is just so inconsistent. I found, and I found, and maybe it's because I've seen it so many times, or maybe it's because uh they're just not funny and i was i have a better taste now but i didn't find the jokes very funny a lot of them right uh so i'm kind of in the same boat that what you were mentioned earlier with uh uh siskel and ebert which is it was like kind of a middling movie that didn't really know what it was doing that had some good moments but overall was a little flat and to be quite honest, could have been cut, I think, by more than 10 minutes. You could probably shave half an hour off this movie yeah. and and have it be a lot better. And I think the biggest disappointment of this movie is that you can just tell right there that this movie could have been spectacular. It could have been amazing. There's so much potential there and you could tell that people really wanted to make like a big budget, creative box office send-off of 
of Arnold Schwarzenegger action movies and action movies generally. Yeah. And it just misses the mark a little bit, but it's still got some enjoyable parts. I mean, what did you think? I mean, this movie's a mess, but I have a different attitude about it now than I did in 1993. You know, I didn't necessarily um, have the interest in kind of breaking a movie apart and looking at it sort of as, you know, pieces when I was 12. Whereas now I look at it and I'm like, this movie doesn't really work, but I kind of admire how crazy it is, like the weird ideas it has. It is very much trying to be the action movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't have the like pure vision that Robert Zemeckis had with that movie. Like you can tell when you read anything about the production where you have like a billion writers, you know, a team of editors, a director who really doesn't know the movie he's making. He said he was making his E.T., which is like kind of crazy. Yeah. Oh, there is an E.T. scene in the movie. I know. There's an E.T. scene and the hero, like, kind of dies and then is brought back to life. So it's very much like his E.T. But, you know, E.T. is love. This isn't. (laughs) But I mean, I can admire, you know, Schwarzenegger's having fun. There's a lot of set pieces or gags that, like, they don't really work in the execution, but they're kind of funny ideas. I don't know that the world of this movie makes any sense whatsoever which is i think a problem and i'm looking forward to diving really into that with you a little later yeah i know exactly what you mean (laughs) i'm still unclear if we are in a jack slater movie because if we are then jack slater movies are like hodorowsky movies which are insane (laughs) because nothing makes any sense but i do love like the send-up of 80s cop movies um i think the guy who plays the chief uh, Frank McRae as Lieutenant Decker, who I have to believe is named after Fred Decker, who co-wrote Monster Squad with Shane Black. I feel like that had to be the case. But, like, he's hilarious as he's, you know, the angry chief who's just always yelling. There's bits here and there that I go, oh, that's kind of clever, or that's fun, or they're taking a cliche and putting a fun spin on it. But it's like, it's not baked into something that's has any sort of internal consistency. I could not tell you the plot of this movie. Everything to do with the villain and the mob is like <laughs> delirium. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, we get this movie that's really kind of two halves smashed together where you have the first half, the first hour in this cartoon world, and then the second hour in the real world. And I look at that and I'm like, these two tones don't go together at all. The second half feels really slow. And I have to believe if this movie is made nowadays, and the producer has said he would love to remake it. <laughs> You have to believe that the first hour of this would be the first movie, the second hour would be the sequel, and then a third movie would be hopping into different movies. Probably, and it would probably be based on uh, an already existing property. It would probably yeah. uh, be in the Marvel universe. There'd be no Humphrey Bogart jokes for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> no Amadeus jokes. Yeah, and the uh, cartoon cat would be a cat that we actually recognize. It would be the cat from <laughs> Captain Marvel or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, I don't know, should we just talk about the world of this movie? Because this kid... Well, which world? The world of the Jack Slater universe that Austin O'Brien is entering. We He gets this golden ticket. This is a typical fantasy trope of, like, the magic key that enters you into Oz or what have you. Well, be, before we get there, uh, what I'll just say is they establish Danny Madigan as this kind of down-on-his-luck kid. Down-on-his-luck? He's getting handcuffed to a pipe by, like, a break-and-enter-like crook. This yeah. kid has a horrible life. <laughs> yeah, his single mother who just 
t- takes off and uh, I mean she's really nice but she's more of a buddy than a mom yeah because really, he skips school to hang out with the uh, unintentionally creepy uh, projectionist Nick <laughs> played by Robert Prosky which by the way it was a big year for Robert Prosky because he was also in Mrs. Doubtfire sure yeah yeah uh, who just seems to let him hang out in this dilapidated spray-painted theater yeah. and watch uh, Jack Slater movies over and over again when he should be in school. My favorite part of that kid's early life is that after that crook breaks in and really in a really like tense scene chains him to like the sink or something. Um, we cut to the kid in a, in the police station. So obviously like the kid is wound up in the police station because of this really terrifying burglary and the police tell him Go home. Your mom will come home when she's off her shift. <laughs> yeah. Well, if my kid is, like, chained to a bathroom appliance by, like, a criminal, I would be rushing. Knife. Yeah, branching a knife. I'd be rushing home. Yeah, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Poor Danny's life is established as being horrible, and that's kind of what, what's important. Yes. Or not horrible, but at least uh, uninspiring. He has no friends, apparently. Yeah, so he spends his time in the theater watching Jack Slater movies. He knows them by heart. Okay, how would you describe a Jack Slater movie? I'd describe it as an over-the-top 80s type action movie along the lines of maybe less of the Schwarzenegger movies, although along the lines maybe of like more of a Commando or Lethal Weapon. I was thinking Lethal Weapon, yeah. Or uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid, if you've seen that one with okay. Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty accurate to me. I guess the one thing you would take from maybe Arnold is other than something like Commando with, like, the overkill aspect, um, is the crazy stunts feel like very, like, Terminator 2. That state-of-the-art, like, uh, big action scenes. Yeah, but it's a generic 80s action movie with with all the tropes of 80s action movies blown out of proportion. So every, every bullet from a gun blows up a car. The... Uh, Lieutenant Decker, his boss, is always yelling yeah. at, a, at a high pace. Tar just washes off your face. You can punch through glass windows. Every woman in the movie is a supermodel. And wearing a, a vinyl or leather dress or bodysuit of some kind. All of those tropes. And Is that a trope? <laughs> I kind of think so. You know, just like that every every woman is beautiful in, uh, in sure. an action movie. and. And, and when Jack Slater talks to these women, he only ever talks to them um, basically about sex and getting their numbers right. and, and that kind of thing. So all of these tropes thrown into one, uh, that part I, I kind of understand. I mean, I understand an action universe, if, sure. any, if anyone does. Um, and I think that that whole idea is kind of interesting, kind of works. I agree with you. Here's where I'm confused, though, because the Jack Slater universe, as depicted on the screen that the kid is watching, I get it. It's, it's a, a, like a cartoonish take on action movies. But when the kid actually enters the universe with his magic ticket, we're getting cartoon cats. We're getting, like, Looney Tunes gags. I don't understand. Is he in a Jack Slater movie? I think here's, here's what I gather. Humphrey Bogart showing up. Here's what I gathered from this, Cam, is that just like there's a behind-the-scenes in the production of a movie, there's a behind-the-scenes in every movie universe that you see, and that that movies are all sharing the same universe, and that this is just like a general movie-verse where fiction can happen. 
Okay. But the particular story in this case revolves around Jack Slater, who has his own set of action rules and movie rules that kind of propel him through his own story. Sure, but at one point in the movie, a villain has a gun on Jack Slater, and he's saved by the cat shooting the guy down. Does this happen in the Jack Slater movie? I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, that's not what I took away from it, but I see your point. That, why is this cat there? And we also have this villain played by Charles Dance named Benedict. He's the henchman of like the mob leader played by um, Anthony Quinn. But this bad guy walks around with like really silly emoticon contact lenses. Well, glass eyes. Glass eyes. Well, and by the way, Charles Dance, probably these days best known as uh, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. Sure. Uh, he, I, I actually really enjoyed him in this. I yeah, he's he, good. Yeah, he's good. But like, does like his whole character not feel really cartoony for this for like a Jack Slater movie? I didn't think so. I thought um, Benedict the assassin. I mean the the glass eye that he kept switching out that had different graphics on it was certainly a bit over the top, maybe, and yeah, some of his mannerisms were a little bit over the top. But I, I thought he worked well in the universe he wasn't the problem that i had with the with this universe he wasn't in my mind one of the things that didn't work i guess i feel like the universe i don't understand the rules of this universe like yes there are the movie tropes they point out you know being able to punch through glass and all that sort of stuff but or being able to get shot but still survive but there's like this weird like cartoon reality blending together with it where i don't really like when i look at roger rabbit I understand the way this universe works with Toontown, the real world. It all is really simply laid out in a way that's kind of very clever. Whereas I could not really explain to you how the universe of Jack Slater works. Well, I think that's it. I think that Jack Slater's universe takes place in the general cinema movie verse. But why are there not other characters from other movies walking in? Well, there are. There's a cartoon cat, for Yeah, example. but that, come on, that's a generic cartoon cat that's <laughs> voiced by Danny DeVito, we should say. Yeah, it, I don't know, but I think there's parts of that that I really liked. For example, when they go to the uh, police station, Yeah. and the uh, there's a desk in the police station where there's uh, generic cops lined up on one side, sure. and there's a bunch of... Uh, interesting characters, like character actors, lined up on the other, and they're going like... All right, Harry, you're partnered with the rabbi today. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, like the whole buddy cop idea. Yeah, and yeah. they're just partnering, you know, cops with uh, characters that shouldn't be cops. Right. Uh, I don't think you can do that in Jack Slater's specific universe, but I think you can do that in the kind of cop movie verse that they establish here. Okay, another question. Later in the movie, we it's see... It's just a frame for a joke, Ken. Sure, sure, but later in the movie... We see the movie The Seventh Seal, and Death, played by Ian McKellen, comes out. Is the universe of The Seventh Seal connected to the Jack Slater-verse? Like, can those characters intermingle? I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, talking to you about Last Action Hero is like talking to anyone about a time travel movie. I think you're (laughs) overthinking it. I don't think the people who made this movie thought about it enough. Well, exactly. I think that's the problem. Because when I look at Ready Player One, when I look at uh, Roger Rabbit, 
their worlds make sense. This feels to me more like something like Cool World, where it's getting very confusing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a reference I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> that came out, I think, one year before this movie. I mean, here's what I gathered, is that Jack Slater lives in a universe that is basically an amalgamation of all action comedy cop movies. What about the cat? <laughs> he's a... Well, they, they, he's a cartoon cop cat i don't know um i i agree with you the cat was didn't make a ton of sense if it hadn't been for the cat would you have been okay with this humphrey bogart yeah humphrey bogart too <laughs> so okay okay can we can we just abandon this but also we have sharon stone showing up as her character from basic instinct yeah. i guess that's a cop thriller i guess i guess we can bend to that one Michael the, Douglas is a cop in that. And that's more of a nod. That's just kind of fun. Robert Patrick was there as the T-1000. Sure, sure. But he's dressed as a cop, so it makes sense, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. So that's what I took, is that uh, Jack Slater lives in a cop universe, or a movie cop universe. Death lives in his own Ingrid Bergman universe. I mean, I guess they would speak Swedish. Although he didn't when he came out, did he? Uh, you got to believe that Death is a pan-linguist. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, let's get through the, the first hour of this movie. We have the kid winding up in the back seat of uh, Jack Slater's car in the midst of a car chase. Mm -hmm. um, and going on this crazy journey, dealing with the mob and all that. What did you think of the first hour of this movie? The story of the mob drama and how the kid interacts with all this. I thought it was interesting, uh, but there was a number of times where I thought, this is going on too long. Yeah. Um, this like, should have been a 90-minute movie. It really should have. Like, the kid, he, Danny, he lands in the back of the car, and, he's, and he then spends, like, the next, like, 25 minutes or so trying to convince Jack Slater that he's in a movie. Yeah. And not really in a, in a very interesting way, just, like, just kind of standing around and talking about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't particularly interesting. I think you could have done that in about one-fifth the time or one-third the time yeah and so there's a there's a lot of that but i i really did like a lot of the stuff that happens i liked actually a lot of the action i shouldn't say i liked all of it some of it is like we talked about that movie the villain which was like the ode to looney tunes and like i didn't really care for the action scenes in this movie that tried to evoke looney tunes physics but when they were doing normal like arnold action just amped up that extra little degree into absurdity i had fun with it like that's the stuff i enjoyed i felt like they kind of missed their tone a lot of the time yeah for example the uh when they get in the car and all of a sudden a uh, a hot rod full of full of guys with machine guns just leaning out on all sides yeah and chasing them around i think al leong who's pretty recognizable as you know, a long-haired, bearded Asian gangster in a ton of movies. Yeah, he's in Die Hard. Yeah, really recognizable for me from Big Trouble in Little China. Um, Lethal Weapon as well. Action Jackson. Yeah, but they start chasing him, and there's a there's a ridiculous car chase. I thought that was a lot of fun. Do you know how Al Leong died in that scene? Do you remember? Refresh my memory. His head was impaled on an ice cream cone. That's right, that's right. Is that too wacky? I thought in the context it was kind of funny because uh, they 
blew up the the hot rod. Sure. I think. And, I think the exploding cars is a funny and, gag. Yeah, threw a body through an ice cream truck, which then exploded yeah. and shot an ice cream cone through Al Leong's head. Yeah. Uh, so that's the kind of thing I can forgive. Where I had more problems is, is the same place you did, which is where the physics, uh, like where, where real world physics just gets bent too Although much. They, yeah, like we should say bent too much because they're bent through the action scenes as they are in a lot of Arnold action movies. And that's okay. It's, mm-hmm. it's amped up. It's a little bit, you know, a little bit, you know, cartoonish. It's a little bit uh, outside the, uh, <laughs> what reality will accept. That's fine. Right. But there are points in the in this Jack Slater universe where it becomes like a Looney Tunes cartoon, which is a little too much. Like a good example of that for me is like, I think Arnold's really fun in the action scenes in this movie. Like I, I like when he's doing the crazy car stunts or just some of the crazy, you know, fist fights and shooting stuff but when i have the scene where he's doing like insane flips off a building it's like it's that one step too far mm-hmm. where he suddenly turns into bugs bunny yeah i actually thought the first part of that particular scene was kind of funny i thought having him do a, a basically a handspring off a railing one story down yeah uh, was funny but then he falls like nine stories and tucks into a roll at the bottom and it just looks kind of silly and i thought especially to a lot of the action scenes one of the big problems with them and this might have to do with how rushed the movie was to release is the the special effects in this movie are really bad in a lot of places yeah they look unfinished there's a scene you referenced earlier where we have the et sequence where uh austin o'brien is on a bike playing chicken with a car and he winds up getting launched in the air. That scene looks terrible. Like, E.T.'s made, what, 11 years before this movie? E.T. looks seamless. It looks great, even today. Whereas when I look at this scene, it looks terrible. It looks like a stop-motion kid. And not only that, there's a scene where he's going downhill, and you can tell they just tilted the camera on an angle. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of awkward camera angles to simulate things going up in the air yeah uh and there's a lot of clearly i'm not sure if it's cg Mm -hmm. at this point or if it's animation but there's a lot of clearly fake explosions yeah in the in the background and especially with uh guns where there's really fake looking muzzle flashes or tracer bullets and that kind of thing and unfortunately it really takes away Mm -hmm. from the from the action gags that they're trying to put on there because they don't just look fake or over the top they look poorly done also the did you notice the guns make weird noises like they don't sound like guns in some cases yeah yeah they sound like really really muffled and i know that like arnold said he didn't want this movie to be that violent he wanted to be more friendly towards kids when they made the last action hero action figures which I'm sure sold like <laughs> like gangbusters. They're probably worth thousands on eBay now. No, I looked. They're like 25 bucks. But um, <laughs> Arnold, yeah, I did. Arnold insisted that none of the action figures have guns. Oh, okay. Because there's a lot of guns in this movie. Yeah, like it's really confused. But um, yeah, like one like bit I thought was fun. Like there's a scene in um, in um, his ex-wife's house where he goes there to see his daughter played by Bridget Wilson, who's pretty fun, actually. And, uh, you know, the, all the bad guys storm in. And, like, there's a part where Arnold, like, comes in and gets, like, two, gu- like, henchmen to shoot each other with, like, machine guns. Like, that stuff is really fun because it's played over the top. 
so it's not ultra violent, but it's still kind of that Arnold Schwarzenegger overkill you kind of look for in these movies. Mm-hmm. And you even have like this kind of weird scene where Bridget Wilson takes down a guy while screaming in, a, in another room to make it sound like she's being attacked, but after, she's beating the heck out of him. After getting slapped. Yeah. And then quoting her father's line. Yeah. You've made a big mistake or something like that. Uh, and then uh, and then proceeding to beat him up. I mean, I've never seen that in a, in a movie before. A scene like that of a female character taking down a guy while screaming. Yeah, I don't know if I have either. It's, it's kind of novel, I guess. Yeah, and it was kind of an entertaining scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoy the the big jacked up uh, airbrushed truck that she drives needlessly. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot there's a lot of things in this movie to recommend it. But at, at the same time, and this is what I was talking about at the outset, is the pacing and the consistency of almost everything in this movie from the acting to the special effects, to the action, to the comedy, is just inconsistent and all over the map. And so we're left with almost like bits of sketch comedy or sketch action yeah. in a big kind of muddled mess. Well, and we're really not talking about how many scenes there are of Austin O'Brien breathlessly spouting exposition and just nattering away at Schwarzenegger. I don't know in what world they thought it was a good idea to put so much of the pressure on this kid to carry this massive production. Like, it feels like the kid has more work to do than Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. And I always, we've talked about it here before with a lot of our child actors. I I try not to come down too hard on child actors because... You know, you think about it. I don't know how old Austin O'Brien was on, on set here. but Probably maybe 14, maybe? 13, 14? Yeah, so he's a teenaged actor. Um, and, I mean, really any fault in terms of how he presents on screen when you're that age has got to rest on the director. I yeah. Think. Oh, I agree. And, like, this isn't a good situation for a kid either where this movie's being rewritten every hour and... It's just chaos all around him. That's not a good environment to get a good uh, kid performance. But he's also not being given material or, like, really good scenes to carry. He he just is, like, thrown in these scenes where it's like, okay, holy crap, this movie's not making sense. Kid, you got to start spouting everything you know about Jack Slater movies to carry this scene. Here's, like, 15 pages of dialogue. Spout it. And Schwarzenegger's just going to stare at you dumbfounded. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the problems i mean this is billed and should be an arnold schwarzenegger starring vehicle where this kid should be in the background right he, yeah. he should be there as a as a macguffin to jack slater not as the primary driving force of the movie yes i agree and i mean it, it's just like this whole section this first hour like i would find stuff fun about it the la brea tar pit stuff i mentioned earlier I remember them hyping that a lot before the movie opened. And, like, it's a kind of fun sequence. Um, but everything around it sucks. Like, you have this whole plot that comes out of kind of nowhere where there's a mobster who has a bomb in his stomach. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, um, what is going on? Nerve gas, actually. Nerve gas, yeah. That is one of the most Wait. bizarre flights of fancy in a movie I've seen in a while. Wait, well, let's, uh, let's set the stage here where the... The uh, two rival crime families are coming together over the funeral of the aptly named, I think his name is Lafart. Yeah, I think so. Um, and he has a nerve gas bomb. But who is this character? Stomach. I'm not really clear on who, <laughs> on who that is. But they established that the 
uh, gangster Tony Vivaldi, played by an Anthony Quinn, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. He's not really that funny, though. I thought he's not bad. It's kind of one of those roles where you're like, really great, they got Anthony Quinn, what are they going to give him? Eh. <laughs> yeah. I loved him as Zeus in Hercules the Legendary sure. Journeys. But he decides he's going to knock off these crime families, and that way Tony Vivaldi will be number one. There, there's a kind of a disposable gun sequence, a disposable crane sequence, although our uh, this is probably a good place for us to do our segment on spots, Sven. Yeah, go for Sven it. Sven Ole Thorson, one of Schwarzenegger's longtime collaborators, does show up briefly in the crowd as a gunman. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, watch for him there. He's in the foreground, but he you don't really see his face. He kind of do. We, a little bit. We were able to identify him. We were, but... but we had to rewind it. Yeah, and we also hosted Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, so we're really going to spot Sven. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, I know what you're saying, though. We go to the Labrie tar pits. Again, it's used in some ways to establish some of these gags in the Jack Slater universe where tar just wipes off his face yeah that was pretty funny yeah but uh, as far as the sequence itself goes i'm not really sure it it works that well it's a good you know location it's okay yeah i guess <laughs> ultimately though the villain charles dance escapes to the real world and we leave this cartoon world behind i don't know that that was a great idea to do one hour in if anything i think they should have milked the jack slater universe for three quarters of the movie, it had like the last ten minutes in the real world. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we took too long to get there. Yeah. And we left it too early. Because this real world stuff is really not that interesting. Yeah, you kind of established, so Charles Dance, or I should say Benedict, played by Charles Dance, the assassin. He finally knocks off Tony Vivaldi because uh, he hates him. And he's a really bad guy. And takes um danny's magic ticket and escapes through a wall in his apartment i guess at the end of a long day right um luckily this portal stays open just long enough for jack slater and danny madigan to go through after him and try and stop him from committing crimes in the real world right now they do that you know they get through the magic ticket tony how does this magic ticket work Oh, come on. No one knows how the magic ticket works. Because <laughs> the villain who has the magic ticket, he's able to enter into the real world. The only person who knows how this magic ticket works is Harry Houdini, <laughs> who gave this ticket to Nick the Projectionist 50 years ago or whatever. True. But they're able to enter without the ticket, so it's a little confusing. Well, but... it stays open a little bit longer for some reason. Yeah. But, like, they waste a lot of time in the real world. Like, we do have a big climax in the real world. Tied to a you know an event we'll talk about in a bit, which is kind of crazy and out there and kind of fun for a Hollywood movie, but we spend like what like half an hour with the bad guy just wandering the streets. Yeah, figuring out that you know just as Danny had to figure out the rules of the movie world, you now have Benedict the villain figuring out the rules of the real world. Although I will say that the rules of the real world in Last Action Hero are not anything like. The rules of the real world that I'm used to. No. Nope. For example, Benedict, he um, shoots someone. Yeah. And then starts screaming, uh, you know, because he wants to test a theory that nobody cares if you kill someone. Mm -hmm. uh, and he shoots someone and he's saying, 
I just murdered someone, I just killed someone, I've shot someone, and I want to confess. Yeah. And someone up top yells, shut up, I'm trying to sleep, or something like that. Isn't that like the ultimate like New York movie cliche, though? Where it's like anything crazy is going on, they're just like, that's New York! I guess so. Um, and I mean, certainly New York, I think, has changed a lot a since lot, yeah. the early 90s. But I'm pretty sure, and I might be wrong, uh, but I'm pretty sure that you could not shoot someone in cold blood in in the street surrounded by people and then start yelling about it and have that be okay and have nobody care yeah that was kind of cartoonish that was more like a movie than like the real world and we also get a bit where he teams up with jack slater's uh, arch nemesis ripper played by tom noonan now this is a little confusing well not arch nemesis arch nemesis from jack slater three sure sure yeah uh, and tom noonan's character killed jack slater's son and uh Here's where I get a little confused. How did Charles Dance's character get Ripper into the real world? Did he go back to get him? Yeah, I think that uh, that's <laughs> that's what I gathered. Is they uh, he had a, a video copy, I think, of Jack Slater three. Okay. Um, and then they're just sitting at a restaurant talking. I'm assuming that he used the ticket to go in and uh, get Tom Noonan or get uh, the Ripper. Tom Noonan, by the way, did a great job, didn't he? Yeah, he's fun. He was pretty creepy. He is, yeah. He's maybe a little too creepy for this movie. Yeah, maybe. Like a child killer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. PG-13. Yeah, yeah, very strange. But uh, yeah, as the axe-wielding maniac uh, who uh, reminds me a lot of the villain from Cobra, actually. He does, yeah. But uh, yeah, so he get, he pulls him out and says, you know, in order for us to be successful in this real world or in the movie world, to be successful wherever... What you need to do is not kill Jack Slater because he can't be killed. Yeah. You need to kill Arnold Schwarzenegger, who plays Jack Slater in this world. What is more cinematic to you, though? Um, this Benedict villain sitting in a restaurant talking to Ripper or going to a movie theater and pulling him out of a movie? Well, maybe they're running low on money at that <laughs> well, point. You know what? They, or time. Or time. I don't think it was money. I think it was all time. Yeah, it's a lot easier to book a cafe than it is to create a special effects portal and a screen again true um and also at this time we get a lot of jack slater going and hanging out with austin o'brien's mom um kind of a funny little although i feel like it's not as funny as it's supposed to be i feel like the jack slater relationship with uh this mom character um irene is not as funny as it's supposed to be played by mercedes rule who uh won the oscar for fisher king sure I don't, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, she, she's an you know, Academy Award winner. Was, she's was one of those actresses who was really prolific in the 90s, and you just don't really hear that name anymore. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot of her lately. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you get this flirtation ship, and um, I don't know, not a lot of comes of it. It's kind of like more just like a moment. Well, I think Jack Slater finally learns that uh, there's a certain pleasure in talking to a woman and getting to know her. Is he going to do that back when he goes to his... Uh, fantasy land uh i'm not sure i don't know that that's <laughs> left for the audience to determine i guess but we get them kind of following the trail of clues which is like stretched out way too long like honestly i think if this movie had been made now they would have figured out where this bad guy was going very quickly oh yeah for sure yeah and ultimately he's going to the premiere of arnold schwarzenegger's latest movie jack slater 4 yeah which 
I love this idea, actually. I think this is great. It's a really fun idea. <laughs> yeah, it is a very fun idea. And of course, at the premiere, there's going to be a whole slew of celebrities. Let who... me just list off some of these celebrities. Oh, oh, please do. Now, this is a star-studded affair. These are the biggest names in Hollywood showing up for this premiere. We have Little Richard. We have Chevy Chase. Jim Belushi. Lisa Gibbons. Jean-Claude Van Damme, MC Hammer, Melvin Van Peebles, and Damon Wayans. Yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a guest list, isn't it? The 90s called and they answered. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, we'd be remiss to say that uh, Jim Belushi, of course, has been in how many other Schwarzenegger movies? At, at, two. At least two. This is the third, because he's in Jingle All the Way, as well as, obviously, um, Twins. Uh, no, Red Twins, sorry. Red Heat. <laughs> yeah, Red Heat. and Twins. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, uh, Little Richard starred with uh, him in Commando. Of course. He played the log. <laughs> <laughs> I have to wonder how many of these cameos really worked for kids in this era. Yeah, I, I did see this movie when I was 12. I would imagine the Van Damme one would have amused me, but I don't know that I would have really cared about any of the others. Yeah, I mean, probably my favorite uh, cameo of this movie, I, and I'm going to take it back. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, is actually when they go to the video store. Oh, okay. Because uh, Danny's trying to prove to Jack Slater again uh, that this is actually all a movie and that he's, he's a movie character who's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And in the movie store is a big cardboard stand-up cutout of Terminator 2, uh, Judgment Day, except instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the Terminator, it's being played by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I would have liked a clip of it. How great would it have been if they'd recreated a clip of Terminator 2 with Stallone? Probably very expensive. Hey, if they could do that whole Hamlet sequence, why couldn't they do the Terminator 2, you know, 30 seconds or 15 seconds? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, you just do a quick scene with him and Edward Furlong. I think that would be amazing. I, I agree. It's it's weird that the Hamlet sequence was a dream sequence and not actually <laughs> the movie sequence. It was a little, it is weird. a little confusing. But anyways, we're back at the movie premiere now. Yeah. Where um, the Ripper, under the direction of Benedict, have decided that the best way to get at Jack Slater is to attack the actor who plays him. Arnold Schwarzenegger playing himself and his... Uh, wife Maria Shriver also making an appearance. Then wife, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Schwarzenegger presents himself as kind of a a hapless, uh, fame-hungry... Doofus. Restaurant-pushing doofus. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, which is pretty funny. And, yeah, uh, it is. You know, and people get Tom Noonan confused with the Ripper, of course. There is no one. <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine when I was like 12, what a Tom Noonan cameo meant to me. <laughs> I don't think I'd seen Manhunter at that point. But <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, this premiere stuff is a great idea. I think in concept, it's really funny to have these two worlds colliding. But did it play as funny to you in the actual experience of watching it? There was parts of it I found funny, like a lot of this movie... Uh, I thought the parts with, um, you know, Maria Shriver chiding Schwarzenegger, saying, don't push your restaurants again, you just embarrass me. Yeah. And him going, well, now that we're talking about Hollywood, I'd like to just say my restaurant, Planet Hollywood. And, you know, I thought that stuff was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, But a lot of it wasn't particularly funny, but I don't think it was intended to. It was similar to a lot of the movie where there was these long establishing scenes or cut scenes were that weren't really that entertaining they were just there and a lot of the cameos weren't actually that funny 
mm-hmm. they weren't actually getting any sort of good you know like they didn't get a lot of stuff where the stars were maybe kidding their images or anything it would like cut to van damme and someone's asking him you know are you excited to see this movie he's like yeah i like to come out to the to every one of arnold's movies it's like that okay it's like the the whole i guess joke is that well i'm seeing van damme in a movie play himself whereas he, he's not actually getting anything funny to say it's kind of weird yeah i agree with you even jim belushi he doesn't get anything funny to say really. no he's like i'm happy to be here and you're like i believe it <laughs> sounds, sounds good to me i no. guess i guess mc hammer does say he's uh you know is the deal done uh we're gonna do the soundtrack to jack slater five that's waka waka <laughs> i think it might have been funnier in the 90s when mc hammer was relevant uh, actually releasing things yeah now i have to ask you benedict's plan is to kill the real arnold schwarzenegger if he does this how does this impact jack slater um that I mean, that question I did have, and that is an answer I don't have for you because presumably Jack Slater would continue to exist in whatever form he happened to be in, in whatever movie he happened to be in. So, what is the relationship between him and Arnold? Well, like, does Arnold create new adventures for him? Like, I don't understand. Like, what's going on in Jack Slater's day to day when Arnold isn't making a new Jack Slater movie? Again, I don't have an answer for you on that. <laughs> what's what's the alternate Tom Noonan doing? <laughs> and, and this is where I, I think, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, where although I think I was berating you at the time, sure, um, you kind of feel like at some point one of these hundreds of script writers and story editors and everything else got a hold of this and had maybe seen a time travel movie the night before or something like that, sure, and imported these time travel. A movie rules into this movie but they don't really work because if schwarzenegger is killed these movies these movies aren't like the picture in back to the future they don't just start to fade right they're still there yes jack slater's one through four still exist and presumably with those movies there given that you're pulling death out of uh, a 1932 ingrid bergman movie yeah uh not ingrid uh ingmar ingmar sorry not, <laughs> not ingrid bergman that's totally different yeah uh presumably at any point uh danny if he felt like it could just take one half of this magic ticket and go and get jack slater uh and and see him again in fact he could go back to jack slater too before his son was killed yeah and tell him everything and and just yeah can he go and change all the past of these movies i again i don't know they don't really give us uh, a set of rules for this and so we, we get into the problems of time travel movies because they start applying these time travel movie rules to a movie that doesn't have time travel in it. Like, I'm just trying to think. You could go through, like, every single movie and completely alter the entire course of said movie. In which case, if you do that, does the movie still exist? I think so. I think once you leave the movie, um, the movie is still the movie. Okay, another question for you. Okay. If Austin O'Brien goes into Jack Slater 4, as he does in this movie, or I guess it was, yeah, it was 4 he went into, not 3. When he's in Jack Slater 4, if an audience member goes into that theater, can they see him in the movie? Again, they don't don't tell us that. Well, they tell us that uh, the projectionist Nick, he sleeps all the time. The the (laughs) theater is by and large abandoned i think there's a security guard there maybe how much is that real estate worth that building would not be there that long 
Well, I mean, that was one of the things. They didn't really focus on it. And again, it's one of those things that maybe was cut out. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but at one point, Danny is going into this theater and there's a sign out front that says, Coming soon, Lowe's Metropolis with 10 big screens. Oh, no, I didn't see that at all. Yeah, so similar to, I think, you know how a lot of movies about movie theaters, they always seem to focus on like the small town theater. Definitely. That, you know, or the old drive-in that's getting torn down. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, are the, where is the cinema of yesteryear that's yeah. being taken over? When you would go and see movies and they would have the black line running down the screen from the torn prints. Yeah, and so uh, I got the impression there was supposed to be a little bit of a subtext here that this was, uh, you know, this was a movie theater with history. This was an old-time theater. This was where people went to, people like Danny Madigan go to not just watch movies, but to feel the magic of movies. And at any time, this dilapidated old theater was going to disappear and be replaced with a more modern, but presumably less magical experience. Sure, right. It's very much like the last picture show or something like that. Yeah, or uh, what was that Jim Carrey one? Oh, uh, The Majestic. Yeah, The Majestic. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Cinema Paradiso. Or... Yeah, all yeah, of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite moment in this was the part where death comes out of the seventh seal, but we cut to the theater showing the seventh seal and it's packed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas the theater showing Jack Slater movies is empty. <laughs> it's like apparently in this New York, everyone's flocking to see the seventh seal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was an art house theater. We have a, we have a couple classic theaters that show um maybe lesser run prints and sure. foreign films and that kind of thing here in town uh anytime i go to one of those they're usually pretty well attended i guess that's fair that's true it's just the contrast of the jack slater theater always being empty i feel like that theater would probably do a little better it depends are you only ever showing jack slater movies don't tell me you would not have a bunch of drunken frat guys in there like laughing it up all the time yeah maybe um but don't tell me that if uh, the Rio or uh, the Cinematheque here sure. played uh, the Seventh Seal, the seventh seal that, that you and I wouldn't be down there assuming that it wasn't too late on a Tuesday or something <laughs> okay. like that. I haven't seen the Seventh Seal in theaters, but I have gone to see other Bergman movies like Wild Strawberries. So yeah, I guess I would be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, ultimately, we get this weird ending where um, death comes out, as I said. Apparently, they reshot the ending to this movie because the test audience scores were so terrible that they were like, we are in trouble. And so, you have this weird sequence. By the way, what I read is they didn't, they, they didn't only just reshoot the ending, mm. uh, but they actually took the test cards yes, and, and burned, burned them. them. Yeah, which is amazing. Which didn't help the press on this movie. No. But Death comes out and ends up helping this kid get Jack Slater home. This whole sequence felt really like clunky. It's a very major Deus Ex Machina of Death, who's for some reason a character in the last like four minutes of this movie. Yeah, although it was interesting to see—I won't say a young, but a, at that point relatively unknown to cinema goers. Although he was very well known to theater goers. Yeah, uh, Ian McKellen. Yeah, right. Yeah, he'd done a few things in the past, like he did uh, Michael Mann's *The Keep*, but for the most part. He was in theater. He breaks really through in 98's his year. And then, because he does, I believe, like, Apt Pupil, and he does um, Gods and Monsters, and then from there on, he's just rolling. 
Well, uh, yeah, and then he's all of a sudden Magneto and Gandalf. And yeah, for sure. Bob's your uncle. The world's his oyster. But it, it is fun to see him here. I don't know that he's as good as William Sadler in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. There's no rap number, unfortunately. Although, speaking of Bill and Ted, I mentioned him earlier, Al Leong. Yeah. Uh, it would be a shame to not mention that he played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's <laughs> Excellent Adventure. But what did you think of this ending of death helping Jack Slater get home, telling the kid to go get the other ticket? Uh, it was a little weird. It was very weird. Uh, I kind of liked it, although it was weird just having death there. Because one of the things that Benedict um, is talking about when he's talking about what this ticket can do for a villain. That in the real world, villains can win. He's saying, I can go get King Kong. I can go get Dracula. I can go get Hitler. And I can go get Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. So you're like, oh, wow. Like, I can't wait to see that. This will be interesting. The only movies that have characters come out of them into the real world in this movie are Jack Slater 4, Jack Slater 3, and, and the Seventh, Seventh Seal, Seal, which is a little strange. Like, I, I wouldn't have minded if they're going to start taking characters out of other movies that they, especially in a movie like this, uh, where you go to the real world, which is very dark and you have benedict talking to prostitutes and that are visibly on substances yeah and drug addict uh panhandlers who are getting mugged for their shoes and not in like a even a darkly funny way it's just dark or even like a home alone 2 lost in new york sort of way yeah so you've got that i mean this would have been a great opportunity i think if if they're gonna start pulling other characters out of movies to pull a whole bunch of them yeah Right, to have... Um, I'm sure Columbia's library would have allowed them to get something. Sure, or even have five or six, you know. I mean, they've got Dracula circled in the th- in the, um, in the newspaper. Um, and Dracula is um, public domain, so they could have done Dracula. Oh, I think this was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, I know they have the Bram Stoker's Dracula, but like you could have put a generic Dracula in this movie. Yeah, or, I mean... You could have done Frankenstein's Monster, for example. I mean, Tom Noonan played Frankenstein's Monster in Monster Squad, written by Shane Black. Yeah, I mean, that would have been interesting. Or, for that matter, uh, go into other Schwarzenegger movies that have been released and take out Schwarzenegger characters and have them played by Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Something like that. I I don't know if it would have worked, but I think it would have worked better than just having um, Jack Slater 3, Jack Slater 4, and, uh, you know, a classic of european cinema (laughs) (laughs) which probably doesn't appeal that much to the audience running to a last action hero like which is kids and action movie fans yeah well exactly so uh, i agree i mean i thought ian mckellen was interesting it was interesting to see him there i didn't mind the character of death in this movie um at that point but it was like like so much of this movie a little bit of a an an orphan that you're kind of thinking well why is this here like why isn't this fleshed out a little bit more yeah and you get this weirdly like heartfelt ending very very weirdly like et-ish where you know jack slater's like dying but uh austin o'brien's like you're my friend forever i'm sending you back and he's like i'll be right here (laughs) 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 and we get this weird shot to close the movie of schwarzenegger driving into the sunset wistfully in his convertible and it's like okay It, it, it ends very much like this sweeping fantasy movie 
which I can't say most of the movie really is. A lot of the movie feels like it wants to be like Airplane or Naked Gun. Yeah, I guess what they leave uh, the character Jack Slater with at the end of the movie is uh, an epiphany. So maybe he's now in a position where he can develop beyond the cycle of violence that plagues his action star or his action character lifestyle. I don't know. Uh, it would have been nice, I think, if you know maybe they had gone back and into Jack Slater three. And maybe saved his son or something like that. I guess they did establish that, you know, he's got a different relationship now with uh, Lieutenant Decker. Yeah. Um, but he still seems like he doesn't have a lot of friends. His son is still dead. Uh, his daughter is still an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. In her monster truck. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, I mean, he's a little bit more aware, but not much else has changed. Is he ever going to visit this kid again? I don't know. I mean, does the ticket still have its power? Maybe. Maybe. Or is, for that matter, Danny Madigan. I mean, he's really the the main character of this movie instead of Schwarzenegger. I mean, yeah. What What has he learned? Has he got any friends at this point? Is, is he going to go to school? Is he going to go to school? Is he going to avoid this theater? It seems like he'll go to this theater more. <laughs> this is a cautionary tale about kids going to the movies. It kind of is. Yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> Oh, Danny, we weep for you. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I mean, it would have been nice, I think, for these characters. Like, maybe Schwarzenegger himself, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Maybe he finds Danny and, and decides that um, he's just the stuff he needs to have him work in the movies or something like that and see what the magic of film is really like. Um, and maybe Jack Slater starts living an idyllic lifestyle um, instead of one filled with violence. I don't know. But, yeah, they just drive into the sunset because nothing was really resolved except that the fictional characters of Benedict and the Ripper were not successful. Right. Yeah, they were dead. But they still exist in Jack Slater 4 and Jack Slater 3. But also, like, they were just one and done villains in his movies anyway. Exactly. So he's got other people coming to kill him shortly. Well, they, they even established that. And it was one of the, actually, I thought, one of the better gags in the movie where he goes back to his apartment, which is uh, basically has no furniture in it, just yeah. a bed. Yeah. And, uh, and like the same clothes everywhere. Yeah. And he just sh shoots through the closet door and a, and a guy in a balaclava and holding a gun falls out of the closet. Yeah. And uh, he says, oh, there's... There's always someone in that closet waiting for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Heck, heck of a life. And the closet's just full of guns and the same snakeskin cowboy boots. <laughs> and that's it. You know if they make this movie now, there's much more of a sense that there's going to be like a relationship between the kid and this Arnold character. And that like the worlds are going to be coming together for the future onwards. Like the kid's mom's going to be going like you know, to have like some sort of relationship with like Arnold in that world at some point. Like they're going to bring it together and the projectionist, it'll cut to him at the very end watching it, smiling. Credits. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, we mentioned it earlier. I think you look at a movie like Ready Player One, which was released fairly recently, and you see, I think, a little bit a little bit of what this movie would be like if it were released today. Or other movies where there's a lot of pop culture references dropped. Um, maybe sure, like, like Wreck-It Wreck Ralph. Ralph. I was thinking something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you're just overwhelmed with these 
pop culture references, even a show like Stranger Things or something like that. Adam and, Sandler's Pixels. And you're just yeah, you're playing up, you're playing up nostalgia, and the movie's driven by nostalgia almost more than characters. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, you get your standard gift wrapped resolution. Call it a day. Roll credits. Okay. Well, I think on that note, let's uh, give our final thoughts on uh, Last Action Hero. Tony, what have you got to say? I think this movie has a lot of heart. I think it's uh, got a lot of funny pieces and a lot of interesting pieces and a lot of fairly decent action in it. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a little bit scattershot and inconsistent and the movie really suffers from it. I enjoyed the movie, uh, but not as much as maybe I could have if it had been executed a little bit better. And it's it's a shame that it wasn't. I think I'll revisit this movie again at some point, but probably not within, <laughs> probably not in the next twelve months if I can help it. It had been twenty five years since I saw it the first time. <laughs> that long, eh? I guess so. Yeah. So I mean, I'm sure I'll see it within twenty five years again. <laughs> yeah. Well, what did you think about as your final thought? I Cam? think it is a very interesting disaster, and that. You know, there's a lot of movie stars who have terrible movies under their, you know, filmographies that I would never, ever watch again. But this one, I totally would because I think it's interesting. It has fun little ideas in it. There's like little performances that are kind of goofy and endearing. It has like a colorful energy in its best bits. But ultimately, it's it's a mess and it doesn't really know what it is. But because of that, I can't really hate it. I just have to kind of look at it and say like, oh, so like this is what happens if Roger Rabbit hadn't been thought through well and had had like 37 screenwriters. And, uh, you know, so it's just kind of watered down. But when I look at like Arnold in the 90s, this is such a 1990s Arnold movie. It really is. It's just it wasn't True Lies. You know, it wasn't that it wasn't a Terminator 2 for him. It's like the one that had that kind of budget, that kind of power behind it, all that talent attached, and it just did not work out in his favor. But I don't really feel bad for him, even though he was really depressed about this movie not doing well, but whatever. He had true lies like a year later. Uh, he still made 15 million bucks off it. Yeah, no kidding. I'll weep for him. So I think that wraps up Last Action Hero. Okay, so Tony, what are we doing next time? Our, our next one's going to be a little bit weird, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this movie existed, but we're going to do a movie called See Arnold Run, which is uh, a biographical film about Arnold Schwarzenegger from 2005. Uh, I've watched uh, the trailer and a, a couple clips online, and it, <laughs> I can't say that it's it's going to be a masterpiece, uh, but... I'm interested to see what another filmmaker does uh, trying to explain uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's life as a fictionalized biographical film. Yeah, I just want to really recommend everyone who's listening to this podcast right now, jump on YouTube. You can find See Arnold Run easily and give it a watch because I think it's going to be a really fun podcast episode because let me tell you, We've watched a few little minutes here and there of this TV movie, and it's crazy. The guy who plays James Cameron alone, uh, 
I think that the five minutes that he's on screen is is worth sitting through the the hour and a half. I say that now. I haven't seen the rest of the movie, but I think it's going to be a fun episode. Okay. So you can, of course, email us at arniegiddenpod at gmail.com and leave any reviews for us on any podcast uh, program you're getting your podcasts from. You can find us also on Twitter at arniegiddenpod. Tony, how do they get hold of you? You can find me, Tony G, Tony like the name, G like the letter, at arniegeddon.com. You can also download us direct from the source if you are so inclined at www.arniegeddon.com. Okay, you can of course also find me on Twitter at Cam, V is in Video Store Nostalgia, Smith. Okay, so we'll be back with C. Arnold Run. Run.